Hi everyone! Left to our own devices, the conference may be over, but you can still watch the recording at cybellum.com conference. Tune in to listen to FDA updates from FDA executives themselves, learn about AI in automotive from NVIDIA, the AI leader, and listen to product security leaders from Philips, Honeywell, CISA, and more. Go to cybellum.com conference and watch the recording for free. See you at the next event! Hi, this is David. And this is Shlomi. And you've tuned into Left to Our Own Devices, the product security podcast. All right, so let's get with it. Our guest today is Tony Turner, CEO at OpsRight. Tony is an InfoSec veteran with over 25 years in the trenches, as he put it. He's an expert in security engineering, SBOMs, product design, and more. You name it, he's done it. He's a chapter leader at OWASP and was previously the VP R&D at Fortress. We're very excited to have him on today. Tony, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. So how about if we start off uh, with you telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got into product security in the first place? Sure. So as you mentioned, I've been doing technology work for 25, I guess, probably 30 plus years now. And I, I guess what really got me into security in general, I'll, I'll start there, was pain, right? So, you know, I, I always tell people that pain is one of the best motivators. It's the best way to foment any kind of change inside an organization. Someone felt some pain and it caused them to do something different. Well, that's exactly what happened to me. I was dealing with a SQL Slammer worm back, you know, 25 some years ago, uh, working in the IT organization and experienced the pain. And I said, well, what can we do about this? What can we do differently? So that was kind of my uh, entry point into security. And as time has gone on, I've, I've always been a pretty technical person, but I'm kind of a hybrid of uh, more, you know, risk management and organizational related risk, as well as the technical side uh, of risk, as I see it all kind of, uh, we have to take a holistic approach to, to make any kind of forward direction in an organization, but obviously products and product security is at the core of that. And I guess probably about 15, 20 years ago, I found myself in a situation where I needed to stand up and run a vulnerability management program. And that was really where I really got my teeth into the topic of product security and had to start dealing with you know, products that didn't maybe um, do proper vulnerability testing and security testing and started getting into application security. I started the OWASP chapter around 2011 or so as I started getting more and more into the topics of application security. And at that point in time, I was doing a lot of uh, work around security testing of security products, right? So I had this theory, you know, back around 2009, 2010, and you hear a lot of people talking about it now, but people really didn't really focus on this too much back then, was that, okay, software security is a problem, product security is a problem, but we have lots of security products out there that are also products that are also software that also create attack surface for us. And so I spent several years diving very deeply into the topic of web application firewalls and WAF exploitation and, you know, WAF bypasses and things like that. And the rest has been history since then. Wow. Quite a journey. Coming up the ranks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just kind of natural the way 
that these topics evolve. You know, you have something that challenges you in your daily work life. And so you dig into it and then it turns into something else and that turns into something else. Before you know it, you've touched like 10 different topics along that journey. So I'm curious about one specific topic that you you talk a lot about, which is uh, supply chain cybersecurity. And specifically, I'm curious to hear what you think about how mature do you think it is today compared to where you know it needs to be? And who are the people who care most about it today? Is it the asset owners, the manufacturers, someone else? Maybe the regulatory uh, agencies. Perhaps. So the topic of supply chain security is it's very interesting to me. Obviously, I've been pretty deep into this world for the, for the last several years. And the, the really interesting thing is I've been doing supply chain security for far longer than I even realized I've been doing supply chain security. And what I mean by that is going back to the earliest days of my career, well, well, well heck, even the vulnerability management program that I you know, stood up 15, 20 years ago. One of the things that has been very apparent to me is almost anything we do in security, first, first off, almost anything we do in security is part of somebody else's supply chain program, right? We all have upstream and downstream relationships with other entities. If I choose to patch or not patch a critical vulnerability this weekend, if I have a downstream consumer that relies on some sort of, they have some business function that relies on the service that I provide that is in some way related to that vulnerability I chose not to patch, uh, I could be creating a uh, downstream impact for that for that entity. So in that sense, uh, I am influencing somebody else's supply chain. But that's not necessarily what, what, what I'm referring to. For a number of years, I worked as a consultant, and um, I had customers who would come to me with things like, um, I'm a manufacturer, uh, I'm concerned about my intellectual property leaking out the door of the contract manufacturers that assemble on my finished product, right? Uh, it's assembled in factories in Asia and other places around the world where we think, you know, some other folks in certain geographic areas might be inclined to counterfeit my product, right? I didn't really think of it that as supply chain. It was just, you know, it was just another facility assessment that I was doing and some intellectual property tracing and some data security work and, you know, some controls assessment work for, you know, all the people that touched the source code along the way, right? It really occurred to me that that's really what we were doing, but that is exactly what we were doing. The word supply chain has really kind of evolved. If we think about where the traditional supply chain security started is in this whole topic of vendor risk management. For the longest time, that's all anybody was doing, right? You know, vendor questionnaires, and, um, you know, uh, ask people questions, maybe doing on-sites like, like I did for the factories. And then somewhere along the way, we wound up with uh, you know these vendor ratings uh, platforms, which are interesting, but I mean, probably create uh, create a little bit of noise in, in, in some instances for some folks. And a lot of this was really kind of driven based off of uh, you know the needs of uh, the cyber insurance, right? Like uh, you know what is insurance expecting that you're doing uh, to, to manage a risk? And then somewhere along the way, um, and it's really only I think been in the last few years where this word supply chain, we've always had this concept of supply chain to describe, you know, logistics and, you know, the process of moving goods along the supply chain. But as it relates to security and risk and cyber risk, it's really been the last couple of years has been a heavy focus on product security. Um, uh, I think the the advent of folks that are, you know, doing firmware and binary analysis, SBOM is certainly, uh, software bill of materials is certainly, uh, contributed 
to this increase in awareness and especially all the attacks that we've been seeing over the last few years, you know, um, solar winds onward has really kind of raised the profile of this as a thing that people need to be looking at. Now, you ask, like, you know, where are we at? Are we in a good place? We're certainly a better place than we were a year ago or even two years ago. And a year from now, we'll be in a much better place than we are now. But we are still in a learning and growth stage. I think most organizations know that they need to do something about supply chain security, but they don't necessarily know what that means. And I think there's probably a lot of confusion in the market. And as much work that I have done on the topic of software bill of materials, I will be the first to tell you that the topic of SBOM is contributing an awful lot of confusion to the conversation. Because I think as an industry, we tend to fixate on very specific buzzwords. Like we have a very short attention span. Uh, we can only, as an industry, only grasp a handful of concepts at a time. You know, it's AI or blockchain or SBOM or, you know, whatever the latest buzzword bingo topic du jour is. And right now, that, right now that's kind of SBOM. But I think the topic of managing supply chain, even if we only look at the software side of it, is much bigger than just SBOM alone. Yeah, right. definitely. And, and I can tell you, I, I got back... Uh, well, when was it? Two weeks ago, I was in the Embedded World Show in Nuremberg, and you know that is the supply chain. That's like the center of the supply chain for components being put into medical devices, automotive, you know, vehicles, um, industrial critical systems. And when you speak to some of the smaller vendors, you know, they they don't even know what an S bomb is, and they're not required yet, you know, to. Oh, well, there are some companies, I mean, we've heard from some very big manufacturers that they're already asking, not even asking, requiring that any component that they receive comes with a, uh, an SBOM. So, and, and this is, we're hearing more and more. So this is kind of like the shift left out of the development area and into, you know, the supply chain. And, and some of these companies, you know, in Taiwan or in, even in Germany, you know, they can be 10 man shops and they don't know the first thing about cybersecurity. They know about putting together a specific component with a board and some software and, and to customize that for the need of their manufacturer that they're selling to. So, so I think this is, I agree with you. I think, and I was there last year and, and there's so much more ahead this year. There's actually a lot more awareness about it, but there's still a way from implementing. Uh, so yeah, I think, I think we're, I agree with you hundred percent. We're, we're a ways off, but next year will be better. Like you said. So I think, um, you know, one of the biggest challenges that we see today is the collaboration between asset owners and manufacturers. So how do you view that and how do you think that we can solve that issue, you know, relating to cybersecurity? Well, first off, I think I think one of the things that uh, asset owners need to understand is anytime they levy additional requirements on the manufacturer, um, there's a financial reality of doing all this. And it winds up becoming... I mean, I hate to say it, but it winds up, at least at this stage in the game, before it becomes um, a more standardized practice, it must winds up being a, pr a premium feature in the products that you're buying. And I think consumers need to ask themselves, from a dollars and cents standpoint, how much is all this stuff worth to me as an organization, what I'm asking my suppliers to do? Because first off, it's going to take them time to spin up a program 
to get the process in place, to get the people hired, right? To execute on all these things that they're being asked to do. And by the way, that's going to get passed on to that end consumer as a cost. I think just kind of assuming that it's just going to happen um, and, you know, the world is, you know, puppy dogs and rainbows and everything's just going to work is probably a little short-sighted. Now, I think that's where we want to get to. Like once this becomes part of a mainstream standard process, then it just kind of gets built into the cost models for everyone and it just it becomes a standard accepted practice. I mean, I talk a lot about um, uh, the topic of security engineering, right? And one of the big topics that I bring up a lot in the topic of security engineering, engineering in general is this whole topic of standard of care or duty of care, right? Like engineering in general has adopted uh, certain requirements that are just expected, right? And this whole topic of uh, standard of care is really predicated upon this idea that as as an engineer, I have a responsibility to build a product that adheres to these certain minimum requirements, safety being one of the primary ones, right? Cybersecurity doesn't fall within that kind of general concept of that, of that standard of care principle when systems are designed, right? If you look at the engineering life cycle, right, um, I, I kind of oversimplify it as a you know design, build, test, deploy, and implement, right? If you look in that design phase, there's very little that happens in the design phase in most products life cycle, right, that has a lot of focus on security. You might towards the end as you're validating the design, you might, you know, do a threat model or some other kind of activity, but it's very rare that in the front end of the requirements gathering of that product, right, that security has equal footing with the functional and operational requirements for the product that you designed to bring to market, right? Unless your product is solving a security problem, and even then, that's your functional requirement, not I need to encrypt the data in my database or... Uh, I need to have uh, you know really good SDLC process in the development of my software, right? So that's a big part of what we need to move towards is pushing these concepts. I mean, you mentioned shift left; that's exactly what we're talking about, right? Is shifting all the security work further to the left and making it you know kind of a foundational uh, default outcome of the work that we're doing. Right. Interesting. So to change the topic a little bit, I know you have a, both a new book that's coming out and a new company that you just founded. So I'm curious about both. Can you talk a little bit about uh, about it? Yeah, certainly. So um, I, I've, been, I've been pretty busy lately. So Chris Hughes, who is uh, the uh, Chief Information Security Officer for Acquia Security, they uh, I won't talk about them too much because I'm sure I'll butcher what they do, but uh, do some work in the federal space around uh, DevSecOps work and a lot of supply chain work. Uh, Chris is a pretty prolific guy on LinkedIn, and I am as well. So uh, I guess about a year ago, I reached out to Chris and I said, hey, Chris, uh, you want to write a book? So that's what we did. We wrote a book uh, called Software Transparency, um, uh, which is being published in June uh, by Wiley Press. The book is finished. It's just in um, in the editor's hands right now, doing a little back and forth to you know finalize everything. But uh, it's content complete and should be out uh, in June. We, we think that this is going to be well. There's really not any other books on the topic of software supply chain that we have been able to find anywhere, other than you know some PDFs um, that have you know, been published by 
you know, non-miter or uh, other uh, government or nonprofits or, you know, some vendors that are in the software supply chain space. There's really not a good book on the topic, but we tackled it in such a way that we, that was friendly to newcomers to this space, but also valuable to people that have been uh, working uh, in this area for a while. It's not just about SPOMs. It's also about other supply chain attestations. We, we touch on cloud quite a bit and, you know, the concept of zero trust as they apply to software supply chain. Uh, we have a whole chapter dedicated to operational technologies, industrial control systems, uh, some focus on legacy software risk, because we see a lot of the see a lot of the industry right now is focused on what is being developed today and what will be developed tomorrow. Right. And the industry at large has a very, very minor focus on, you know, the software that's in place today. You know, if you think about like a nuclear reactor or, you know, even large banks um, are sometimes running, you know, these massive, massive software projects that have been put that have been in place for decades. You know, how do we address the software risk with those things? So all that is, is really kind of a part of the book, but it's, you know, kind of where do we come from? Where are we now and where are we going uh, with the topic of software supply chain? Um, I was really excited to have uh, Steve Springett, who is um, the leader. Mr. Cyclone DX. Yeah, Mr. Cyclone <laughs> DX, Mr. Dependency Track, Mr. He's involved with the Pearl Project. Uh, that, uh, Steve is one of the most prolific guys in software supply chain. I, I swear, every time I turn around and I find a new software supply chain project, I find that Steve is either a contributor or a project leader to the darn thing. Wow. But super, super amazing guy. Steve was our technical editor. Uh, contributed a ton of value, helped Chris and I really stay on track. And, you know, when we were missing things, he kind of, hey, maybe you should think about covering that. So it was really great to have him on the team. He contributed a ton. And we had Alan Friedman, uh, who's, you know. S-bomb rock star. Kind of the father of s <laughs> argue that that's Josh Corman, depending on your perspective right. on things. There's no no doubt that, that Alan has been core to the whole S-bomb uh, evangelization effort and Really, probably the primary reason why S bombs are, uh, you know, eating up as much oxygen in the room as they are now. So Alan wrote our foreword as well. So uh, having Alan involved has been fantastic. Brilliant, nice. Sounds like a m- much, much needed source of knowledge. Definitely not a lot of uh, knowledge out there. So uh, yeah, we would love to get our hands on it once once it's published. Yeah, and, and thanks for that. And and obviously uh, you you'd mentioned uh, the new company. Um, so I. While not focused solely on supply chain, I started a company called Opsrite uh, last October, a software startup, really focused on the concepts of cyber-informed engineering, which is a new uh, security engineering approach um, being proposed by the Department of Energy, not just for electric power, but for really any critical infrastructure organization. Uh, The biggest the biggest difference between traditional approaches and cyber-informed or more consequence-centric approaches uh, is exactly that. Um, less focus on likelihood, more focus on consequences uh, in, in much the same way that zero trust uh, works. It comes with this assumed breach mentality mm. and gets away from this whole kind of, is it likely, is it not likely that this thing's going to happen? You know what? determined adversary with enough time resources that they're going to accomplish their objective. Okay. So let's, can we just focus on like just reducing the impact 
of the bad things that they're going to do to us or may have already done to us. And we just don't know about it yet. So Cyber Informed Engineering or CIE um, has 12 principles um, that guide that direction. And two of them directly relate to supply chain. One being digital asset awareness, which uh, software bill of materials and hardware bill of materials both fit within that bucket, right? Understanding more about your assets, what's in them, what do they do? That kind of fits there. And then there's a whole other area on uh, cyber secure supply chain controls. Uh, it covers everything from you know procurement practices, vendor risk. And there's a bunch of other topics that tend to come into this uh, secure equipment delivery, track and trace, provenance and pedigree, and a bunch of other supply chain concepts that wind up being part of that. So it's been interesting to kind of tackle this. It's, it's a much broader scope than what I've traditionally been working on in the supply chain space. Uh, but it, but it's really nice to be working on a really big problem that I think is really foundational to uh, addressing a lot of the product security concerns that we're faced with today. Excellent. It, it sounds like uh, exactly what's needed in the market. That's what we tell ourselves. <laughs> so, you know, you mentioned a couple of things uh, before. Uh, we, were, we were talking about a little bit about regulatory uh, compliance, and you mentioned also the need from insurance companies uh, for organizations to be able to uh, measure risk. And, and that's an interesting you know, side to the business because uh, it's something that people don't always think about. You know, If you ask someone, well, why, why are you going to start maintaining and doing vulnerability monitoring on SBOMs? They'll say, oh, we, we have to comply with regulations. But yeah, this, the side of the insurance uh, is something that is sometimes uh, you know not thought of, and I think it's something people really need to put more of an emphasis on. So, you know, earlier when we had spoken, you know, uh, in our previous conversation, you mentioned how, in your view, better system understanding can contribute to the business impact. I, I don't know if this is part of it, not part of it, but can you elaborate on that as well? Yeah, absolutely. I, and I'm, I'm going to back up even further here because I think a lot of times in the cybersecurity space, we get stuck in this kind of echo chamber of cyber risk and cyber threat and cyber vulnerability. Um, and we tend to kind of lose sight of why we're even doing this stuff in the first place. I mean, it, it's all about business risk, right? And for most organizations, the, you know, the cyber threats that concern organizations the most are the ones that are most easily mapped to some sort of impact to the business. That's why ransomware is so scary to everyone, because it completely shuts down the business. It's a huge business interruption risk. It's not about, you know, okay, we got to go figure out how to pay somebody in Bitcoin now, or, you know, oh my gosh, there was a vulnerability that got exploited or some malware thing happened, right? Like cybersecurity people care about that, but the business doesn't care about any of that. Uh, all they care about is the fact that they now have impact. They can't operate. Their downstream customers can't operate. Their customers are complaining at them that there's some kind of problem, right? Like, let's make the problem go away. That's all we need to do here. We need to make the problem go away. And that's, and that's part of what insurance is there for is to help... Um, be a safety net, right, for the business risks that occur just in the general course of business, whether it's cyber insurance or some other kind of insurance, a safety insurance policy, whatever. Insurance is just there to uh, reduce the risk for the business for whatever topic that insurance is covering. But I think we all know that cyber insurers are kind of bad at understanding what is the true cyber risk 
inside an organization. And they're looking for better metrics. They're looking for better ways to measure and understand. That's why they originally gravitated to this whole concept of, you know, vendor ratings, right? That was a number they could get behind and they could, you know, get the actuaries to look at it and figure out like, you know, can, can we get some kind of takeaway from this number to tell us how much we should, uh, you know, how, how, what do we charge for this policy? What kind of limitations do we need to put? You know, how, how do we control our, our liability risk to our, our, our downstream customer? But I think um, I saw a recent report. I can't remember who it was. It was, it was an academic entity that was working with a bunch of actuaries inside the insurance industry. And they, they kind of come to the realization that these kind of ratings um, systems are, aren't really fitting the bill. And so they're looking for other ways to do this. So that's why things like this whole concept of uh, safety, safety rating and software that kind of came out of the executive order and, you know, uh, having a, a software bill of materials and an understanding of the software development practices that went into producing a piece of software. Can we put a number on that? Right. Like I, I don't think by and large, whether you're talking about the asset owner, whether you're talking about the insurance provider, no one cares about the details that we care about. They, they have really simple questions that they need answered. To be truthful, I don't even necessarily think that the asset owner needs the S-bomb. I think they need an answer to the question, is this software safe to use? Right? It, it, is it a vulnerability again? Is it already backdoored? Is it? Am I going to have a bad day when I install this? What is my, you know, true cost of ownership for this product that I'm intending to use? But asking them to take the time to dive into, you know, hundreds if not thousands of layers of components inside a software release that's going to change tomorrow is an exercise in just noise and chaos that is probably a bridge too far for most asset owners. Now, I think this is where your third parties come in, right? Third-party solution providers that can, you know, take the burden off the end customer and kind of help, you know, if I don't trust my vendor, then I have a third party that I can work with and they can answer these questions for me and I can trust them, right? I might trust my vendor, I might not but I have a relationship with a third party that can help answer these questions as well. And I think that that's where, uh, you know, this space is going to kind of mature and go further into. But again, this is, it's a relatively uh, young market. I, I, I think when I look at a lot of the software supply chain players uh, and even just SBOM players in the early days of this SBOM thing, it seemed like everyone wanted to do everything didn't really realize that there was like this whole ecosystem of things that needed to be done. And you're starting to see folks specialize more and more and realize that maybe I need two or three different solution providers to stitch together to get the capability that I'm looking for. Right. Interesting. Yeah. It's an interesting uh, point of view for sure. I'm also curious about the worlds of age bombs and threat modeling. You, I know you have a lot of experience in those worlds as well. So what are your main tips for product security pros taking their first step in these areas? I've been pretty deeply involved in this world for a while. I actually contributed the hardware bill of materials specification to Cyclone DX. I say I contributed. It was, I contributed and then it was heavily modified as it worked into the spec. <laughs> but I worked directly with Steve uh, on that work. And, uh, but doing a bunch of uh, hardware bill of materials kind of teardowns at my prior company where we would 
bring assets that were destined for the grid into the lab and do teardowns that produce H-bombs and work with a lot of that stuff. And even in the past, doing a lot of work here. Um, the, the really interesting thing here is the correlation points for security risk inside an H-bomb as compared to an S-bomb are not as concrete or not as direct, I should say, right? And, and, and here's what I mean by that. I can look at a software component and version inside of software building materials and go look that up in the National Vulnerability Database and tell you, um, I don't know if it's affected by the vuln, right? Like it might be that this component may be implemented in such a way that there's no risk, but at least have a starting point to say, wow, you have a potential vulnerability in this product, right? Just by looking up that component in a public searchable database. I can't do that with the hardware bill of materials. And I can look up components, but the depending on how the hardware bill of materials was constructed, I may not have uniqueness in that hardware component. I mean, it may be maybe a SKU, right? What do I do with the SKU? It's unique to a specific supplier, right? Like that doesn't tell me anything. That just tells me I can go how to look it up there. Maybe there's a part number. Now, maybe I can look up the part number in some sort of database. But that, that part number doesn't get correlated to any kind of risk information. Now, what I can do is I can start to look at things like uh, certification IDs, right? So say an FCC uh, radio ID, right? Now, I can go take that uh, FCC ID and go look that up online in the FCC's database and say, okay, what kind of radio is in this product? How does it work? What frequencies does it operate on? Are these bands that I can go, you know, try to test and manipulate with like a software-defined radio or some other kind of uh, a mechanism? It, it, it's a really good way to collect some open source intelligence data about the product that I can then take farther and ask additional questions. But there's not such a direct linkage between component and risk as what you have in an S-bomb. Now, I think the risks that you have in hardware tend to be a little bit different than they are in, in software. Yeah, maybe we can compare that to functional safety in a vehicle versus cybersecurity in a vehicle. Thinking of the hardware on the functional safety side versus the software, maybe. For, well, the software is both. Definitely you have both. Yeah. Well, your hardware, your hardware components are obviously where you have the interface with our physical world, right? So yeah. that is where uh, safety impacts come. And you know, I do a lot of work in critical infrastructure. And, and obviously, when you are looking at cyber physical systems, you know, it's the hardware that implements the kinetic changes mm-hmm. in our world. And it's you know, a lot of times it's not the same software that's driving it. It, it tends to be, you know, I, I hate to use the the term dumber because that, that, that's not that's not correct but it, it's less sophisticated software a lot of times that's driving these devices right like i may have some plc um where the logic is defined using ladder logic or function block diagram or something like this it's far different from you know uh, a really complex enterprise system that has millions of lines of code in it right um, but on the flip side that software also as critical as it is, and it's probably some of the most critical software in existence today, you know, controls the doors to the missile silo or, you know, right. uh, <laughs> and this is like, the, this is the craziest software out there. And it typically does not go through any kind of security review process. It's not very sophisticated. And the controls that we take for granted, things like, I don't know, authentication are non-existent, Right. So if I get a signal that tells me that I need to start the pump, stop the pump, 
I don't know. I got a signal that says, you know, there's a voltage or pressure indicator that says that I need to do the thing. But by and large, the veracity of that information, your guess is as good as mine. I'm just going to trust it, right? So like these environments are the antithesis of zero trust, right? They are, you know, assumed trust, right? That's how these environments work. So a, a little bit scary. That uh, is is very, very scary. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I think it's better in a car because of the a lot of the safety regulations uh, in automotive have forced us to start to think about these things. Mm. But I think we have a long way to go to get to where we really need to be with these systems. I and mean, we've seen numerous instances where, you know, car hacking has resulted in some kind of scary outcomes. Right, right. Well, this has really been good. You know, uh, I've really enjoyed listening to, to what you have to say and you have really good insights. Uh, I guess we can close uh, the session with with a question we like to ask uh, our guests. So what was the most incredible, unbelievable moment you've had in your career so far? The most incredible, most unbelievable moment in my career. I think it was something that I really should have known, but learned while responding to a pretty massive wanna cry outbreak inside a very large manufacturing uh, company's environment. And hmm. kind of the lesson I learned is it's really all about assumptions, right? Like, Engineering in general is about making decisions, right? Everything we do in the engineering process is about making some kind of decision, right? A decision based off a requirement, a decision based off of something that didn't work, you know, our boss got mad at us, whatever. Like, it's all about making decisions, right? And those decisions are a lot of times based off of the facts that we have available to us at the time that we make that choice, right? Mm. Part of that is making certain assumptions about how our technology works. Well, at the time, it did not occur to me that just because I have made assumptions about how traffic moves around my environment does not necessarily mean that that is the way that traffic moves around my environment. And so what we learned was as WannaCry was spreading across this environment, default gateways were not being respected. And, and the ransomware was proliferating along paths that users did not follow. And the IT organization had not thought to secure. Essentially, what was happening is traffic was getting routed around uh, perimeter detections, right? It wasn't going through the firewall. It was going around the firewall. And no one had thought to secure those pathways because that is not how users communicate on the network. That's not how... Or to isolate those servers that were sending them out, right? Right, right. I mean, and once you realize this, it's like, okay, we, we can fix this. But like, I think it's just important to remember that we always have to think, you know, we always have to have our evil hat on, right? And think about... Think like a hacker. Yeah. And, and not even just like a hacker, but like, um, it, it mean, it, it's even more an evil hat. It's like the QA hat, right? Like, hmm. like, think of all the possible abuse cases, whether they make sense or not, right? Like, yeah. is it going to happen? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Why would it not happen, right? Well, we probably need we probably need to look at that. We probably need to address that. So, and then you know that they're going to get in, and then you have to mitigate risk, as you said in the very beginning of our discussion. <laughs> yep, yep. At some point, they will get in. Assume it's going to happen, and figure out what we can do to reduce the impact. Right. 
Brilliant. Cool. So, um, Tony, this has been great. It's uh, I, I must tell you, like this, this is so rare to find someone with such a broad expertise in different parts of product security that I, I found it really fascinating. It's almost like you gave us a crash course of different uh, different parts of, of this workflow. So thank you for that. And we wish you all the best with, uh, with the new book and the new um, initiative. Uh, they all sound very, very well needed in the industry. Uh, so thank you. And we're waiting for our signed copies. Well, uh, you know, catch me at a, catch me at a show. I'm happy to, happy to sign a copy for you. I mean, I uh, will. Sounds good. I'm terrible about shipping anything. It's why no, I never don't worry. We'll, we'll come to you. We'll uh, come to you. <laughs> <laughs> we can certainly meet up at a show, and I'm happy to happy to facilitate. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. It's been really good conversation. Um, I, I enjoy just talking shop. Great. Thank you for being with us. Left to Our Own Devices is brought to you by Cybellum. To learn more, visit cybellum.com.